thank you again for just how amazing you are, how good you are, God. And I pray that as we look into your word this morning, God, that your Holy Spirit would just lead us and guide us as we learn what you have for us today. Not my words necessarily, not my desires, but yours, God. Uh, as we sang in that song, as we surrender all to you, may we surrender, God, our, our preconceived notions about your word and what it means in our lives as we look into your living and active and powerful word. So we thank you for your word and just the freedom that we have to um, spend time in it this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I've come to this uh, realization. You know, as a pastor, we come to realizations all the time, just mainly because they're good sermon illustrations. But I've come to a, a good a realization about many of us followers of Jesus that oftentimes that we love spiritual truth in the abstract. We love it in, this, in an abstract way, but not always in the concrete. In other words, we, we love the concept of spiritual truth and how it causes us to better understand how to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Yet when it comes to applying, when it comes to actually applying spiritual truth in a way that requires us to change how we think or to change how we act or to, to prioritize things in our life, uh, we're not always so enthusiastic about that. I don't know if you can relate to that. I know I can. When actually applying spiritual truth me actually means that we, must, we need to change the way that we spend our time and the way that we spend our money and how we relate to and how we view other people, suddenly, oftentimes, we're not such a big fan of biblical truth and spiritual truth. We read it. We study it. We hear it from the pulpit. We go, that's awesome. I want to be that. Oh, God, make me that. He goes, okay. <laughs> and then we go, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> not that much of that. I don't know if you can relate to that or not. I know I, I, I sure can. Well, for the past few messages we've been looking at through our look through the Gospel of Matthew, we've been looking at Jesus' really, this whole bunch of chapters has been Jesus' response to the religious leaders who asked him by what authority was he actually doing these healings that he was doing? By what authority was he allowing people, Beto mentioned it, we talked about when he, when he came into Jerusalem and people were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, our king is here. And even remember we talked about after he was healing in the temple, children, children were even saying, Hosanna, and he wasn't stopping them. And the, and the religious leaders said, what the heck? Show us your credentials. What? I mean, who are you? Who are you to do this? So Jesus has been, has been answering uh, this uh, for them. And we saw Jesus respond to them by telling them three very provocative parables. Essentially what he did, remember, he turned the tables on them by really exposing their hypocrisy and their disobedience as Israel's leaders. And he talked about the judgment that will, they were going to ultimately suffer for not accepting the message of salvation that John the Baptist brought and that he was talking about. Well, this morning, we're going to now see their response. In response to these provocative parables, these religious leaders, they, what they do is they at attempt to strike back at Jesus, like he just, because he just decimated him, if you remember in those parables. Well, here's their attempt to decimate him back. Okay, they're going to try with three questions of their own. And really what these three questions are ultimately meant to do is to trap Jesus into saying something that would completely discredit him, discredit his message before the people, before, in front of everybody. Okay, 
Now, the important thing that we're going to see this morning is how Jesus not only speaks, but also he uses Old Testament authoritative, the authoritative word to counter these religious leaders' incriminating questions. And he's going to use, also he's going to ultimately back up his true identity as the long-awaited Messiah. Now, we're going to look through a lot of verses this morning. So put your hats on, thinking hats on. We are really going to go through a ton. So hopefully we'll get done by dinner, okay? So it's going to be you. So here's the main thing, though. What I believe that we're meant to learn from today's passage is this. I'm just going to put it up there for you. Only by applying God's authoritative word will we be led to all truth and true kingdom living, okay? This is the main idea. This is what we're shooting at this morning, okay? And not just knowing, not just knowing in our head God's word, but actually applying it to our daily lives. So let's look at this. Let's just jump right in. Look at this first question that the leader, that religious leaders have for Jesus, which really it's a primarily, it's an ethical question that they ask him. Let's look at, we're in chapter 23 of Matthew, verses 15 to 18. It says this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Now, this may sound familiar, right? Does this story sound a little familiar, like about a week ago? I know Luther, when he preached last week, he talked about this. So we're going to go over, but we're just going to, because we've got a whole bunch of them to go through. We're just going to still talk about this. So the first question meant to trap uh, Jesus concerns paying this yearly tax to Rome that all adults were required to pay. Now, it's interesting that the mix of these two people, these two groups of people that go to him, it's an obvious ploy to get him to say something that's going to offend somebody. You see, the Pharisees, they, these guys specialized in matters of the Mosaic law, okay? And they resented, they resented having to pay tax to this foreign ruler, especially one who claimed to be divine, as Caesar did. He claimed to be a son of a god. So they didn't like this. They did not like this at all. Now the Herodians, interestingly, though, on the other hand, they were more kind of pro-Roman establishment figures, okay? So you got to see that these two groups coming together to question Jesus, I guess in our present vernacular, could be like the Democrats and the Republicans, okay? Coming together unanimously in a united purpose yeah, I'm seeing the cloud go over yet. Okay, that, that's what it is. The, seeing the Democrats and the Republicans come together in this united purpose, like, yes, this is what we want to do. So you can see what, what's happening here. You know, you, you, you get the point is these people don't agree. They're trying to trap him because they would never agree. They would never, they would never come together and say, yeah, we're on the same page, so let's go to Jesus. Not at all. They kind of put down their arms for a minute because he was the big threat. So they want to know if Jesus thinks it's lawful or if it's right for the people of God to pay a yearly, a yearly tax to this earthly and, as some people, in some people's view, heretical authority. Essentially what they're asking is, should they be loyal to the governing authority, which is Rome, or should they be loyal to God? Can you see, to them, you couldn't do both. 
That was not in the cards. Loyalty to both was really a contradiction. It was absurd. To them, you had to choose one or the other. Now, obviously, if Jesus say yes, he's in danger of, of, of alienating not only the Pharisees, but all any other freedom-loving uh, Jews that are out there. If he says no, he opens himself up to being charged with treason for, for not obeying the law. Now, these guys know, by what we, we read here, these guys know that Jesus is a reliable teacher. They know he's not going to be swayed by the crowd. They know that he's going to speak his mind. He's not afraid to say what is true. He's not going to be swayed in any way. He's going to no doubt tell them what he believes. That's kind of what this whole thing, they're buttering him up a little bit. Hey, we know you're true. Basically, the reality is they know Jesus is going to give them the straight answer. No doubt about it. Well, we see that Jesus here is very aware of their evil motives because he asked them, why are you being hypocritical here? Why are you being hypocritical by asking, acting like that this is some, you're being respectful for me? Oh, dear teacher, we know you're good. Well, he, no, everybody knows. Jesus knows. They know. Everybody knows what they're trying to do here. So when answering their question, it's really interesting. Jesus does what he does a lot of times. He uses, he uses a visual aid. Let's look at the next section here, verses 19 to 22. Look what he says. He says, show me the coin for the tax. As they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God." When they heard this, they marveled, and they, left, and they left him and went away. So Jesus asks for this coin, okay? This is the coin that you, they're supposed to use to pay the tax. And he asks, okay, whose image is on that? And they see it's Caesar's. You know, Caesar had his face engraved on one side, and the other side was an inscription, basically proclaiming him as divinity, as divine. That's what the other side says. I mean, so can you imagine... He gets this coin. You got to put yourself, a lot of times we got to put our, don't just read through this. We got to put ourselves in this situation. Someone hands him a coin. Can you imagine what the people are thinking? What's he going to do? What's he going to say? All eyes must have totally been on him. What he was going to, is he going to belittle this image? Is he going to belittle what's written on there? Okay. Is he going to say, you know, don't pay the tax. I bet some people were going, okay, give it to him. Yes. Say that. Go for it. Or was he going to tell them to go ahead and pay the tax and therefore support this self-glorified foreign oppressor? Which one was he going to do? Because the reality is either way, he's, what's going to happen is someone's going to be offended. So they're just waiting. Okay, who's going to get ticked off? I can't wait to see the brawl after this. What's he going to do? Because they're expecting Jesus to answer it one of those ways. Now, it might seem like Jesus is avoiding their question by doing this, but what he's actually doing is letting them know that their question is completely off base. This is the wrong question to be asking. He tells them, essentially he says, if this is Caesar's, if this coin is Caesar's, if this is what you owe him for taxes, give it back to him. Just give it to him. No problem. There's no conflict. There's no contradiction. You owe it to him. It's his. Give it to him. Now, may there be times when the claims of God and the claims of government authority aren't compatible? Of course. Of course there are times like that. But that doesn't mean to pay taxes to the government authority means a person is honoring or recognizing their authority in place of God's. See what they're trying to do? They're saying, okay, you're going to do one or the other. The apostle Peter says it like this. 
He says, but be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing, by being, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, honoring everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Look at honor the emperor. Go ahead. You can honor the emperor. That doesn't mean you're saying, okay, now he's my God. He's my king. It's like one commentator I read this week. He says, respect for government is as, as an important form of respect for God. And I know in these times right now, you're like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? But this is what God's word is telling us to do. Because the Bible says this, there's no government that's not there because he didn't allow it. This is God's will. God is not like, oh, wow, what, what is going on in America? Holy, oh, what do I do? He's not doing that at all. So we honor the government. We pay our taxes. We do the things that we should do. You see, we're free to express our views and opinions. But are we doing so in a humble and an honorable way? Are we doing that? And if you look on social media, I think a lot of us and a lot of the world is slipping in this area. Wouldn't you say? It's very easy to criticize. It's very easy to come across very negative. It's very easy to bash because that's all we see happening. This is not a biblical principle at all. Not a, not a bit. That's not why you're supposed to be good. Here's, here's my challenge to you. As much as you are criticizing the government, talking about the government, bashing the government, or even just frustrated the government, are you praying for the government? I got to tell you, I, I'm, I'm guilty of not doing as much as I need to be doing at all. We pray for our, do we pray for our local people in government in Pacifica or in the towns around that we live in? Do we pray for our country? Do we pray for Donald Trump instead of just saying, what a jerk? It's easier to do that. It's easier to say, well, that kind of seems like the common thing. And we just go, we do that. And the enemy goes, yes, do that. But the Bible says, honor, honor our government. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to the people here. That doesn't mean we agree. You know, that doesn't mean we say, yeah, that's right. That doesn't mean that at all. And we can have our opinions, of course. That's what he's saying. Now, to give God, what he's saying is to give God what is God's now is really what we've been looking at in this whole last month, over the past few months, actually, is to respond to him by exhibiting fruit-bearing, wholehearted faith. I mean, the, governor, the governing authorities should get the taxes due to them. I mean, we reap the benefits of paying our taxes, don't we? We do. We reap those benefits. Yet, we are also to give to God what is due to him, our true, our wholehearted worship. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's not saying give a little bit here, give a little bit there. Honor the government. Honor God. Don't fall in between. Don't just do a little bit here, a little bit there. Go all out in both, okay? 
to this response, realizing that Jesus has escaped their trap. Now the religious leaders are amazed. And what do they do, it says? They just walk away. That must have been awesome. Can you imagine that going, we're out of here. So they just walk away, okay? Now the second question that's meant to entangle and trap Jesus into saying something that would discredit him comes from a different group of religious leaders, okay? The Sadducees, okay, who like the Pharisees, they belonged to this Jewish high court, yet they differed in how they interpreted passage of Scripture, where the, where the Pharisees came with a question that was primarily merely ethical in nature. The Sadducees have one that's theological in nature, okay? And really, the one that they're going to be asking them is one that deeply divided Jewish opinion of that day. And I think a lot of us aren't aware of that. I really wasn't aware of this. But this really deeply divided Jewish thinking back then. Let's, let's look at verses 23 to 28. He said, the same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, they're setting, they, bring out, they bring this crazy, stupid scenario that probably would, could never happen. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife with no brother. So to the second and the third, down, all the way down the line. See how crazy they're, trying, they're getting here? They're just grabbing for straws. After them, the woman died. Okay. In the resurrection, in the afterlife, whose of the seven, they said, in the resurrection, therefore of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her, they're all married to her, so in heaven, whose wife is she? We think, okay, somewhat legitimate of a question. Well, here's the thing. Right off the bat, we know that the Sadducees have the same motives of the Pharisees or the Herodians because they ask a question concerning the afterlife. As we see here, something they don't even believe in. They don't even believe in the afterlife. And they're asking Jesus with this crazy, ridiculous question. And the question they ask really concerns an ancient Jewish custom that really wasn't practiced much in Jesus' day, uh, but the still the idea was valid that if a man died without a child, it was common for the man's unmarried brother to marry the widow in order to provide an heir or a legal descendant for this dead husband. Okay, like I said, it really wasn't practiced a lot, but it was something that um, that was still pretty was still valid to do. Well, with this story, the Sadducees, what they're trying to do is they're trying, they're hoping to spell the whole notion of the afterlife. They're hoping that he's going to say, well, of course that's not going to happen because there is no afterlife. Once you die, you die. It's, it's done. Okay? But that's not what he's doing. Because after, 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 after he says this, he says, no, I want to tell you something different. Okay? So this is what they're doing here. That whose wife should she be? If there's no afterlife, obviously nothing. Okay, so in his response to them, Jesus cites two critical errors that they make. Okay, they make two critical errors that he points out. Their lack of understanding of scripture and their lack of understanding of God. And he's going to nail them on these. Okay, look at verses 29 to 33. Okay, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, or the afterlife, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. 
And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that, that was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. See, what Jesus is essentially saying here to these guys, although these guys had a lot of knowledge of Scripture, although they knew so much, they had so much memorized, they lacked what? Wisdom. They didn't have wisdom. You see, knowledge is simply attaining or gathering information. That's what knowledge is, okay? Wisdom, on the other hand, is the proper application of that knowledge. I came across a quote that some of you have probably heard before this week. It says, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. Okay? We know that's a fruit. Of course that's a fruit. But I wouldn't put that in a fruit salad. So there's kind of a helpful hint. Okay? So first Jesus tells them that in the afterlife or in heaven, there won't be marriage as we know it today, as we know it here. In other words, it's a mistake to picture heaven as simply looking like an extension of life here. Don't you think we do that a lot? We just add some fun to it. We just add some excitement to it. Heaven's going to be a lot like this, but way better. Not at all. Not at all. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. He, sa he says that we will be eternal beings like angels, which means the exclusiveness of the marriage relationship will no longer be relevant or even appropriate. It's a temporary earthly thing. Now, I know some of you are going, oh, darn. If my wife was here, I'd say, sorry, hon. <laughs> I would love that. But you know what? It's going to be so much better. Because that doesn't mean that we won't love one another in heaven. It just means that the concept of love will most likely be greatly expanded from way bigger than we could possibly imagine. For us, we think, oh my gosh, the best thing is having this love relationship with this other person. Probably what's going to happen in heaven is it's going to look it, it, the marriage relationship and the intimacy of that is going to look like peanuts compared to what love for one another truly, truly is. So that's what he's trying to get across from them, okay? Jesus then uses this ver the very thing that these guys hold so strictly to to back up his point, the Torah, okay? The first five books of the Old Testament that really form the basis for Judaism's teaching. Jesus here, he quotes Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where God is telling Moses at the, at the time of the burning bush, he's saying that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Where were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when Moses was talking to God in the burning bush? They were dead, weren't they? They weren't around. They had lived their, they had lived their lives. They were, they were gone, Okay. This is what this means then, if he is the God of these guys, what it means is even long after their death, God still maintains his covenantal relationship with them. A relationship that is way too strong to be terminated by death. Death can't terminate that relationship at all. Therefore, these guys must be alive with God. 
They must be alive with him in the afterlife, even when life is finished here. This is a small blip of the beginning. Just a small blip of that. He says, God is the God of the living, okay? Not the dead. So they're not understanding the scriptures, and they're not understanding God. They don't understand what's going on at all, what the afterlife is like, or what God is like. You see, human love, it's frail. It's temporary. Yet God's love is perfect, and it lasts forever. Forever. It doesn't end. And when we get to be with him in heaven, it'll be so much more incredible than we could ever imagine that it's going to be. These guys don't understand at all. Well, once again, we see that those listening, people are amazed. Once again, their minds are blown by his teaching. Okay, here comes the last one. The final challenge by the religious leaders. And this, once again, comes from the Pharisees, okay? Look at verses 34 to 40. He says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they were probably really excited. But then they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophecies. Okay, so we see that the Sadducees are silenced, okay? They're, they're, they're gone. They go with their, their tails between their legs. They, they're out of there. So the, the Pharisees decide to rally. Okay, we can come back. Okay, we got, it. we got an idea. So they get a lawyer, okay? So they grab a lawyer, which basically back then simply meant an expert. They found an expert in the law. This guy knows it. He probably has a photographic memory of the law. No fooling this guy whatsoever, okay? So they, do, they grab this guy to test Jesus, okay? Now this lawyer proposes this question that really goes to the very heart of the Mosaic law. And in its answer, risks no doubt pleasing some and at the expense of totally alienating others. So this is a tricky one, supposedly. Okay, this is going to be a tricky one. Because you got to understand, amongst rabbis back then, this question of the greatest or most important uh, commandment, this was a familiar one with them. They knew what was going on here. Because back then, they frequently discussed, actually, they debated constantly which one of the 613 commandments in the Torah were actually considered what they call either the heavy ones or the light ones. I mean, these guys were so dogmatic about details. Okay, we got to categorize. Not only do we have all these laws, we got to categorize them. Light and heavy. Light and heavy. Which ones are really important? Which ones are really not that important? You see, the truth is, though, that instead of focusing on, what, on that, instead of focusing on this one a specific rule to be obeyed, which they're trying to get him to do, because they say, ah, that's not it. What Jesus is, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, in order to give priority to a principle which applies to the two main aspects of life as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, our attitude towards God and our attitude towards other people. You guys, it all gets down to that. The whole Bible gets down to that, what it's teaching, our attitude towards God and our attitude towards other people. You see, the truth is really the best gauge for knowing the depth of our love for God is the depth of the love we have for others. Ouch. 
That's a great gauge. The reality is that our love for God, it's made visible and truly demonstrated when we practically and sacrificially love others. I love what John Piper says here. He says, loving God is invisible. It is an internal passion of the soul, but it comes to expression when you love others. Loving our neighbor as we love ourselves is the visible expression and manifestation and practical completion and fulfillment of all that the Old Testament was about, including love for God. Love for God comes to a visible manifestation when we love others. Or you could say our love for God is fulfilled when we love others. Loving our neighbor as we love ourselves is not something we can do on our own. We do it by the Holy Spirit. And I added that last line that he had there. I thought I was going to cut it short, but I realized, you know what? I think about people, how hard it is to love people how hard it is to love my neighbor, how hard it is to love other people, some people especially hard to love, think, yeah, it's impossible, except through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul really summed up this whole idea also in Romans, familiar chapter to many of you, when he said this, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Loving our neighbor, because it's easy, isn't it easy to say, oh, I love God. With all, I praise you, God. We, pray, we worship him. We think, oh, he's awesome. I love you, God. Can't stand him, though. That guy or she, whew, I'm not talking to her ever again. How is that congruent? Is it hard? Yes. Have people hurt us? Yes. Is it difficult? Yes. But to just say we can live there and still be following Jesus and I surrender all, no, no chance. No chance. That's why we need the Spirit of God so desperately. I don't know about you, there's some people in my life that has really ticked me off and it's been really difficult for me to love them. I can't do it without the Holy Spirit. And if I decide not to love them, if I decide I'm going to have, hold a grudge against them, what that means is I'm deciding not to fully love God with everything I got. Harsh, huh? But that's what he's saying here. He said you can't have it both ways. You can't. It just doesn't work. What Jesus is saying to this lawyer is everything in the Old Testament, and we can now say everything in the entire Bible hangs or hinges on this twofold command. Really, this is the lens on which we're to understand the entire Bible. Loving God and loving others. Only in the power of the Holy Spirit who can help us to do that. So, three questions meant to trap Jesus, all failed. <laughs> None of them worked. Now it's Jesus' turn, okay? Now it's Jesus' turn to do the question asking. And the question he asks directly has to do with his identity and his authority. Remember, this is the question. By what authority do you have to not silence these people when they're calling you the Messiah? What authority do you have to do these miracles, to clean out the temple, to tell people that, what, what, you know, this is my father's house. What are you making it into a den of thieves? What authority do you have that? Jesus is going to tell him, 
You're going to see it in these next questions here. Okay, and really, this is the very thing that whole start, start this whole conversation. Look at verses 41 to 45. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Okay, this is what? <laughs> what in the world? Let's just move on. Let's pray. You know, that's a, this, is, this is bizarre. What's going on? So here, here's the deal. Knowing that these Pharisees have a faulty or insufficient understanding of who the Messiah really is, he knows that their understanding is really kind of tweaked on who the Messiah is. Jesus asked them to clarify what their thought is in order so that he can help clarify their understanding. Okay? He's a master at this. Let me ask you a question, and I'll help you with this. Now, at the time, you got to understand the term the Messiah or Christ and the son of David were synonymous. They would use these, they, to the men, they meant the same thing. Son of David, Messiah, same thing. We, that's the same person. I mean, these guys knew passages like in 2 Samuel um, that talk about God's promise to David where he says this. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So when these guys answer, when they say, yeah, he's it's the son of David. What's happening, what's happening here is they're correct. They're right. It is going to be the son of David. Yet what they're giving is a very, they're giving an answer that's totally partial. It's completely incomplete. It falls so short of the true full answer here. You see, the religious leaders were living under the assumption that the Messiah would simply be a human military leader in the lineage of David. That's what they thought. That's who the Messiah is going to be. This guy's going to come, free us from the, the tyranny of Rome, set up a new kingdom. It's all going to be good. That's what they thought. But Jesus quotes Psalm 110 in the verses we looked at there, where through what was happening, this is through divine inspiration. King David is actually addressing the Messiah, the one who will conquer all his enemies. He's addressing him as his Lord. What he's doing is he says that the Messiah, who he calls Lord, must be more than simply a descendant of his body. David knew this. He knew that it was going to be more than just a relative of mine. Okay? It was far more than, it be far more than that. He had to be both human and divine. David knew this. That's why he was calling him Lord. You see what Jesus is doing here? What Jesus is doing, this is so important as we wrap this up here. It's so important. What Jesus is doing is he's building a case from Scripture that these guys knew so well as to the true identity of the Messiah. He couldn't you know, just come in and say, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one. Well, how did that work out? So what he's doing is he's, and it still worked out bad, but he's going to the, he's going to take into the Scripture, which these guys are supposed to be experts in. So let me show you what the Word says. 
He's interpreting for these religious leaders well-known passages to the, from the Old Testament that speak about his identity. Something that he's, we're going to see later, he's not going to explicably, explicably, ugh, explicably apply to himself until like a few more chapters, until like 26. Okay, but he's still, he's helping them understand this is who the Messiah is. You've missed it. But he uses scripture to help them understand. Now we see in the last verse here, verse 46, this response by Jesus seems to really just end the debate. It's, it, it's over. You know, the religious leaders, religious leaders are done. Look what he says. He says, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. I think Jesus put a huge period on that whole, on that whole debate. Done. They were done, and they weren't happy, as we're going to see. And next week, we're going to see Jesus loaded on even harder when he does the seven woes that he speaks to the religious leaders, and he's just not going to let them off the hook. He's just not. He's not going to let their, their disobedience and their hypocrisy continue as they lead people. So what does this mean to us? What does all this practically mean for us today? Well, here's the truth, you guys. I really believe that this chunk of scripture right here screams to us that what we taught, what I put up there earlier, only by actually applying God's authoritative word to our lives will we be led to all truth and to the resources we need for kingdom living. Only in what? I want to hear you. I want to hear you say it. Only in what? Applying. Only in, not attaining more, not getting to memorize more, which is all good stuff, but applying. That's what this is all about here. So really, my encouragement to you guys here is is for us all this morning, it's really somewhat the same that it's been in the last couple months, where I really believe that Matthew is trying to get across to so many people is to, is to us especially, is to make the number one priority in your life to know God's word. I know that sounds so elementary, especially if you've been in church most of your life, but I really believe that. That's what this passage is screaming. Make it a priority to know God's word. Ask him to help you to make time for it. Ask him to help you fall in love with it. Ask him to help you to be desperate for it. Ask him to help you to crave it. Because that's, all, that's, that's what's going to work. That's the only thing that's going to save us. Then we ask the Holy Spirit for the strength and the wisdom to be obedient in applying these truths of Scripture in every area of our lives. Finally, look what the Apostle Paul said about this very truth. Uh, talked about the result of not just knowing God's truth, but applying it to their lives. Look what he says in Philippians. Philippians 4, 9, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, which he ended up writing all that, out of that down, what does he say? Practice these things. And guess what happens? The God of peace will be with you. Now, we're not, we're not earning God's favor by doing it, but we're receiving his peace. The God of peace. Now, who wouldn't want to experience the very presence of the God of peace. Anybody want peace? Anybody craving peace? 
get to know God, get to know his word, and then apply it to your lives, no matter how hard it is. That's why it's important to be in relationship with other believers. That's why it's important to, could be, to be rubbing on each other so we can help each other and we can say to each other, man, I know you're trying to apply that to your life, but I'm not seeing it. Or yay, or being a big cheerleader for everybody. Yes, man, you are really growing in that area. That's what we're for. That's what we need to be for for each other. If, someone, if a brother or a sister or someone's trying to apply the word of God to their lives, we need to do everything we can to help them to do that. We need to do everything. I've often called myself, I've considered myself a spiritual cheerleader. In many ways saying, go, 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 you know, go, do, <laughs> yes. And I know it's hard. I know everything in you saying I can't keep going because you know what? The God of peace. You can experience the peace of God by being obedient to him, even when it makes no sense. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's so powerful. It directs us so explicitly to the things in our lives that need to, to, need to change. The things that are difficult to change, God. And I, I, I know for so many of my friends here, we want to change. We want to be changed, not by our own willpower, not by our own efforts, but we want to be changed by the living word of God. And that we know that that's attainable. We're broken vessels. We make mistakes. We sin. We blow it. But God, we know that we're loved. We know that we're forgiven. And God, everyone, I know, I can probably speak for everybody here. We want to experience the depth of that relationship with the God of peace. Help us, we pray, God. Help us to apply your word to our lives. Thank you that you are faithful to help us to do that. In Christ's name, amen.